Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Eugene Colbert, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, Mark. Great to be here. Oh, it's great to have you here. Uh, Eugene Kohlberg is a Brooklyn-based architect with over 25 years of experience producing award-winning architecture and interiors in the United States and internationally. As principal of Kohlberg Architecture, he has designed imaginative and environmentally sensitive projects across the spectrum of project types. Eugene worked at large firms like Gensler and Ennead before embarking on his own practice in 2016, which has grown each year since its founding. Uh, Eugene, I'm fascinated about your journey. I want to know more about your journey. I want to talk about practice and how, from your perspective, the practice of architecture has changed since you got into this into this game a couple, couple decades ago. Yeah. Uh, but, but before we do that, I want to learn more about you. I want to understand uh, your origin story. So share a little bit about you. What inspired you to become an architect and who or what helped you get to where you are? Well, I'd, um, I'm originally from Puerto Rico. I uh, grew up um, was born and, and uh, grew up there. And I, looking back at it, I come from a long line of what I would call tinkerers. Um, you know, people that spend both officially as their jobs and, and unofficially tinkering all day with, with mechanical things. Um, you know, one of my grandfathers was a train mechanic. 
Um, my other grandfather had a coffee farm and he was always messing around with all the machines. And, um, and that was on the, on the sort of the, the male side of the family, the, the female side of the family, they were always had, they were always kind of painting on the background and kind of art on the background. Um, so I think, you know, not to be, um, stereotypical but i sort of drew on both of those and yeah and i knew i wanted to do something that allowed me to tinker every single day of the week um and uh, you know i didn't i didn't have really any exposure i didn't know what an architect did um you know i knew kind of what an engineer did i knew what a contractor did um so i could have probably ended up in that in those you know those branches of the construction field um but um you know but i i in high school i kept my nose down had good grades i was fortunate enough to get accepted into cornell which back then and i think still now is the the top architecture school in the country and you know and the both the the, the students the peers there and professors um basically just honed me with hours and 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 hours of work um and you know came to new york right after that and been here ever since so just again just kind of honing you know honing by honing by trying honing by um by empirical exercises yeah i want to go back to the beginning of your story you said your your was it your father was a trained mechanic um, uh, my grandfather, my grandfather was a yeah. train, train mechanic and, yeah. and coffee farmers and artists. Yeah. And it's like this, it's like if you were going to design an architect <laughs> and you needed the recipe for an architect, take a little bit of mechanic and trains and, and well, coffee and farmers it, and artists and that all, you know, it's, but at the same time, at the same time, half the family are accountants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so, right yeah, exactly. so I guess that, yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, like nowadays, I talk to my dad about just like accounting stuff. It's yeah. like something that I never realized or never figured I would do. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think all of those disparate, you know, ingredients got put in a cauldron. Yeah. And, Were you uh, exposed to to the coffee farm and the train mechanic and and have that experience as a kid? Uh, you know, I remember being I remember being very little and going to going to the the just being around stuff yeah um and i have a twin brother um who's who's in advertising um and uh we were both just we were things were always around us um you know like my grandfather had this big machine shop in his in his garage like not not like a table saw and yeah, like in yeah. like and like chop saw type of thing but he had like the uh, um he had actually like real machine, right? <laughs> like machine real, shop with me- like, like real iron and shop. steel. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. Fabrication so, tools. Um, yeah, no. In in we were always, um, you know, when we were kids, we were always kind of building projects around. Whether it was just like building a new deck, building a new addition on the house, building you know something on the on the farm. There, there was always something going on. Were you were you actively encouraged to, to to tinker, or was it just part of your environment in your everyday? No, world? I mean, I think we I think we were. Um, you know, it was nobody. 
I'll, I'll say the opposite. Nobody kept us away from it. Yeah. You know, it was, it was one of those things where, I mean, I think if it was now, you, they would probably, it's like, yeah, no, the kid doesn't belong in a shop. But, you know, back then, the 70s in Puerto Rico, it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. Exactly. Let them use the, yeah. Uh, <laughs> let, let them use the, the, the let them use the high power drill. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, no. And we had our own, I mean, I remember having our own little projects, um, just, you know, whether they were meant for us to waste time or not. Um, they definitely had, had an influence. So do you remember when you discovered what an architect was and what they did? Um, yeah, I did. Um, uh, it was, it was freshman year of college and um, I mean, I, I, in high school, there was this, there was this vague idea of what an architect was, which was probably influenced by like TVs and movies. Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, probably some yep. round glasses and a, and a bow tie in there somewhere. Um, but, oh yeah, freshman year of college was a very, very rude awakening on what, what it is that, I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And, and, and that's just critical thinking, right? Like at some point, like at some basic level, it almost doesn't have to do anything about construction or, or, you know, providing shelter or life safety is just about critical thinking. And, and one of the things that happened with our class and, and I think the, the, you know, the classes above and, and below me, it was in the, Early or mid '90s, you know, computers were just kind of coming coming into the picture. Um, but I think a lot of people just went just went in different directions outside of architecture. Uh, you know, I have a lot of colleagues that went into into video game design and, and kind of movie production, kind of on the on the digital side of things. Um, so a lot of people just kind of got really enamored by that. Um, but the basis of that was this kind of critical thinking um, layer that that we were just kind of you know hammered with. Um, so that's that's what you know that was an initial shock, um, and I think it was something that that I was definitely surprised by, but also um, satisfied by the the this thing that I was kind of learning how to do. Um, you know, and then as, as you, as you went through, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, right. That's right. We need to think about structure and we need to think about envelope and we need to think about life safety and so on and so on. Um, so that was kind of the first, um, the first kind of, uh, you know, layer of the, like the peeling the onion type of thing. The second one was, uh, when I landed in New York, um, I mean, I didn't really land. I just took the bus. <laughs> but <laughs> um the uh i was i was hired by an office called rogers marvel architects uh which doesn't exist anymore they, there's different practices now um but it was a young practice and it was it was a little bit of a kind of sink or swim mentality there um there were two two young partners there were 40 by then the office was about 10 people um, and that was the first glimpse I got of what a kind of generalist practice, right? It's like these yep. guys, these guys were doing everything and anything that would just be put in front of their desks. 
Um, and you know, I and it's and that was like, oh yeah, this is super super cool. I really really enjoy this. Um, this is not about being you know locked up in a room just with mountains of tracing paper. This is about doing that, but in the afternoon, going down a drop scaffolding on on a public school project to inspect a spandrel beam, which I have no clue what it was. But I had a structural engineer next to me and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is the thing that, that we need to change. And I'm like, oh, okay, all right, good. I'll, I'll write it on my notes for the report. Um, so that was, the, that was the, the real, I mean, I was there for, for about 12 years in that office and both the office grew you know, in size and scope, but also the people that were there that, that um, at that time, um, including myself and, you know, I think there's probably maybe 15 or 20 people that now have their own offices that came out of there. Interesting. Um, yeah. I think it was just that spirit of like, yeah, we can do it. We can do everything as long as we think critically and, you know, and apply a rigor to what we're doing. We can basically do everything. And, and at one point, um, a couple of years before I left, um, you know, I was doing at the same time, I was doing an art gallery. I was doing a multifamily project. I was doing a master plan for a cemetery. I was doing a furniture line. I was doing a line of um, tabletop accessories, and we were doing a workplace project. And that was me. I mean, obviously, it was you know with a team of people, um, but that was the other the other kind of second schooling that I had. So you like that diversity of work, being able to do lots yeah, of different I, things. Yes, I am. I am a huge, huge believer on a generalist practice. Yeah. Um, I think specialists have their place, and experts have um, their both their place in 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 a in a as a, as a service, but also as as a service within within the span of a project. And that was, you know, and then the opposite was when I got to Gensler. Um, they at the time there they referred to themselves as a as a um constellation of stars right but the gensler model is a studio model where where everybody is specialized in something right you have the the different studio you have the the retail studio and the workplace studio and the the um you know they had a mission critical studio this was in the new york office um, branding studio and even within the workplace studio right they had the studio that did that did the creative offices like ad agencies uh, which uh, my wife was was in one of those but they had the ones that did attorney's office they had you know that were even even more specialized and the idea there is that you're obviously as a client right you're getting the expert in that field to work on it um, where I'm coming from is that yeah that's great and, and you always need that as, as part of a team, but I'm using the, the knowledge and the experience and the baggage that I get from a different project type and applying some of that thinking to this other project type. Um, you know, for example, when we were doing back, back in Rogers Marvel, when we were doing the, the um, we had the opportunity to, to come in on the ground floor with uh, the brand Kate Spade um, do their do their offices, do their retail stores, and kind of do everything with them. And one of the things that the principal said at the time is like, "Well, this should look like an art gallery, 
and all we've been doing for the last X amount of years have been art galleries. So we can definitely translate that. We can translate the experience, the materials, the rawness, the, you know, this and that and the other into something and, you know, and spit out a new um, kind of look and feel for this brand. Um, so I'm a big believer in that. Um, I think that's where, that's where the, the generalist practice um, lives in. Uh, you know, before starting my office, I spent some time at, at any ad, which used to be called Polshek, and they're a generalist practice, right? And they don't split themselves into studios, although you do get these kind of, you know, each partner kind of corrals their favorite, uh, their favorite uh, people. And they do kind of, have, you know, each partner kind of does the project type that they want, but you know, there you could be doing an art gallery, you could be doing a museum, you could be doing a commercial building, you know, it could be a project in New York or a project in Stanford or in China, it could be a hospital, it could be an opera house, right? But I think they're, you know, they're using that, that those lessons that you learn on different project types. Because um, at the end of the day, it's, it's delivering a service, delivering, paying attention, listening, you know, delivering something that matters on schedule and on budget, right? Granted the expertise of, of, I'm not discounting the expertise that somebody might have of doing 50 lawyers office. Um, but at some point, you know, the, the, that cross pollinization of different project types is, is a total asset. When, when in your story, so, so you, you came from uh, Cornell, you went to Rogers Marvel and you then, right. That's, that yeah, was the, yeah. Rogers yep. Marvel. Then you went yep. to uh, Gensler. Yep. Then any ad. Where yep. throughout that journey did you realize that you were an entrepreneur and you wanted to start your own practice? In Was that right from the be- Go ahead. Two thousand and four. Okay. I re- and I re- where was I that re- in the in the journey? I remember. I remember. I don't remember the day. I remember the two projects that I was working on. Um, this was. I was doing an art gallery in Chelsea. I was in. I was do. I was doing two projects: an art gallery in Chelsea. And which and firm were you? Were you this at? This was at, at at Marvel. Okay. Doing art gallery in Chelsea, and I was doing a workplace project in Long Island City. Um, and these are both in New York. Um, and there were both. It was it was both a, a kind of financial realization and a, and a kind of ability realization. Um, since the beginning, I've I've either had the luck, or or the principles that I've worked with have complete confidence in my abilities. But I've always had a really long leash to do things. Yeah. Um. You know, I'm I'm assuming somewhere there it was you know because they didn't have anybody else to do it. Um. So I was kind of stuck doing everything. Um. Other times, I'm sh- I'm sure people believed in what I was doing. Um. But I was the only person working on those two projects, right? And from a fee perspective, each project was twice the salary that I was making at the time. So if I was only doing one of those projects by myself, you know, just out out in the ether yeah. i would be making twice as much money as i would be making in a year and i knew because i was the only one working on it that to to design and draw that project was a couple of months and and to build a project was you know a couple of months as well 
So I'm like, oh, crap. You're telling me that in six months <laughs> I can make twice as much money and presumably have you know, total design control of a project. Um, what? Wh- why would I not do this for the rest of my life, right? Um, and, and I mean, I think there's obviously a certain confidence that comes with that. It's like, yes, I can do this. And not only can I do it, but I can scale it up because at the end of the day, it's just kind of breaking it into manageable chunks. Um, but that's when it was, it was 2004. I was doing those two projects. So that was 12 years before you actually lost yeah, the and then, firm. So, so the thing that I realized very shortly after, I'm like, yeah, this is great, but all my friends are architects. Um, you know, the architecture school that, that I went to over at Cornell, it's like, you don't really get to socialize with anybody that's not an architect. Right. Um, and I'm like, wait, all my friends are architects and they have no money. And why would they hire me to be their architects when they could just be their own architect? Um, so I realized that I had basically no mechanism of getting clients. And that, so it took me, you know, from there to f- to kind of figure out and investigate how does one get clients and obviously keep doing things along the way. And, and, you know, like one of the things that really was interested in working Gensler was like, okay, well, how do you do this? Not only worldwide, but on a scale, like how do you treat the design of architecture and, and running of a practice as like a system? Right. Yeah, and no better place to learn that. And, and no Gensler. better place to do it than Gensler. And and I and and you know Art Gensler, um, who passed away recently, um, he's from Cornell. Yeah. And so I I got to meet him a couple of times. I got to work with with his son um, Doug um, a handful of times. Um, you know there was definitely there was definitely some people in there that that knew what they were doing, knew what they were doing on the business side, knew what they were doing in the design side. Um, so that was my whole intention of being against it. It's like, okay, well, I, I know, I know how to do this. And by this, I mean, you know, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, um, <laughs> of being an architect. Like, I think I know how to do this, right. I'm licensed already. I got my license. I got, you know, a whole host of project types and scales. Now, how do I apply this as a system? And, and, a, and a kind of deployable system at different scales. I was working on the retail studio. Um, so we had, we had a whole host of different projects at different scales in different countries, different parts of our country. Um, so I think that was a great kind of laboratory for that. So what, what was the trigger that actually launched the firm in 2016? It was a conversation with, um, with a really, really, really nice client that I had at Ennead. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a project for, for a developer in Brooklyn and, and we clicked since the beginning. We're of similar age. Um, there, it's a group of, of developers and some of them are younger, some of them are older. And again, I was working on this building for them, 108 units, 21 stories. And the leash that Ennead gave me was extremely long um you know there was somebody else working on the project as well but we were basically flying solo on this um and in one of the things that i wanted to apply to this project was like okay well 
I have the experience. I know how to do it. How do I take some of the the kind of the systems um, idea that I learned at Gensler, and how do I apply it to this project? How can how can we make from a point of view of document of design and documentation? How can we be the most efficient we can? Because it's only two people working on this, right? Right. It should have, it should have been probably one or two more helping with stuff, but, but we were too, that's what the office had. Right. Um, and again, I realized like, hold on a second, I can do this. That same realization from 2004, right. I had, yep. it, I had it again. It's like, whoa, 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 forget about an art gallery in a, in a workplace office. I can do a 20 story building by myself. Yeah. You were doing with, it <laughs> with some help. That gives you lots of confidence. Right. right. With some help. I mean, this is the, the, yeah. the thing that, that you have to, you know, keep, repeating to everybody and keep it's like you you never do this by yourself right right there's always mentors there's always peers there's always you know um accidental collisions that happen that that take you where you are right um there's always family support you know it's 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 a it's a, it takes a village right let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks, the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process. 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. Try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com slash architect. Freshbooks.com slash architect. Get started today. That's freshbooks.com slash architect. So, what will you do with your 11 more hours each week? This episode is brought to you by RCAT.com. If you haven't used RCAT's Spec Wizard before, now is the time. Spec Wizard is a patented tool that allows you to specify a product in just three simple steps, all for free, without even registering. Completely accessible, completely free. Step one. Research and find the right products for your project at rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Step two, use the Spec Wizard tool to select products and options, right? Simple. Step three, generate a complete three-part CSI or CSC specification based on your selections. That's it. A complete three-part specification in an instant with Spec Wizard. Again, Spec Wizard is free to use and requires no registration, no payment, no email, none of it. It's free. Just head over to rcat.com and try Spec Wizard today. Spec Wizard at rcat.com. That's rcat. 
arcat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Largely, I'm like, well, hold on a second. I can do this. And one of the things that I was also learning in the process was that when when you're a developer, um, a lot of what a lot of what you do is look at development sites, right? And and to to you know to do your projects, and these developers, somebody with the skill set that I had, in order to to digest, translate, and analyze the zoning resolution in the building code. Right, because at the end of the day, they need to go out and look for investors, look for partners, and those people are saying, "Okay, well, this is great, but what can you do here?" The "what can you do here" part, I can supply. Right. Um, so I ended up working with a handful of developers that that I was doing that, and I was doing that mostly for free. Right. I mean, the hope in all of this stuff is that you 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 know you provide a small service and then you you know you get signed on on the project, and 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 I still do it. Uh, you know, obviously clients become friends and, you know, they call you. And one of the things that, that the folks at Gensler just kind of beat into your head is that you want to be in a position where you're the trusted advisor. Right. Right. And, and that's, that was big back then. I'm, I'm hoping that it still is over there. That was one of the life lessons I came out of with, from that place is like, you want to be, when this person has a question, whether it's about a development site or about, um, you know, another project that they're doing and they're asking you for your opinion or anything, you want to be that trusted advisor. Because if you're, if, if they trust you with, you know, a handful of things, they're definitely going to trust you with more. They're definitely going to trust you with a project and they're going to trust your opinion. And when you're designing and documenting a project or it's getting built, the importance of your opinion matters. Um, so that was one, so that was one thing that I realized and I was like, okay, well, I can do it. And then finally one of these projects landed and I'm like, okay, well, this is it. The, you know, momentum shifts and now yep. it's time to, 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 to focus solely on, on my practice. Um, I mean, along the way, you know, you're also, um, you're also doing a lot of little independent projects. Yep. So you're trying, you're trying to figure out, you know, how to do this. You're, you're building your own rapport with, with different building consultants as well. And, and I also depend a lot on them. They depend a lot on me. So that was one thing that, that both, you know, on the day job, but also on an independent basis, that's, that's something that I, I have had also the fortune of getting a lot of projects from other building consultants that kind of recognize that, you know, we're an asset to have on their project and, and they bring us in. Um, and, and we're big into not being jerks and we're big into not working with jerks so i think at the end of the day when you're working on a large project that you know it's somebody or a team of people that you're going to be seeing on a weekly basis for a handful of years yeah that's for sure well, you know it's sure. like why would you do that <laughs> over time you learn to see the red, red flags and early on in your career you ignore those red flags and then you get burned a couple of times and you yeah start exactly Yep. And then you were like, oh, okay, those red flags are there for a reason. Yeah. Don't no, go near I, that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it, it's live and learn. We've gotten burned a couple times on different things. And it's like, okay, well, let's take a note on that, put it on the yeah. file. 
What are some other lessons you learned from practicing in the last six years with so your own one, firm? Yeah, so one of the things that um, I've always been a fan of, and I've always, I mean, it's its a, its I don't know if you call it a gift, but I am extremely organized. And, and one of the things actually that was really interesting um, when I was transitioning um, to, to private practice was how do I, you know, how do I do all of these tasks that are, that, that have different deadlines, different masters, different, you know, like, how do you, how do you do all this? And, you know, and I've always been big in, in just documenting, taking notes, making lists, like just going back and analyzing what, you know, what is it? How long does it take? Like what? Because otherwise you're kind of lost in the water, right? One of the, I remember when, when I started, we were still, people were still drawing on, on pencil and vellum, right? And, you know, one of my first jobs as a summer intern was, was deal with the blueprint machine. Yeah, I've been there. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if you've ever sat, have you ever sat next to one of those, but the ammonia smell is not fun. Yeah, there's um, a whole generation that has no idea what you're talking about, but, yeah, but I know exactly. very clearly yeah. what you're talking no, about. And I, and I remember, you know, assembling detail sheets, um, you know, with little sticky back um, cutouts of wall partitions and you were, you know, put them, feed them through the, feed yeah. them through the machine and you have, so th there's, there's a, there's an organization that comes out of having to have all of these um, different different masters. You know, I was doing independent work. I was doing work for the offices, working at different scales, different um, different scales of time and different scale projects. One of the things that I've been that I'm surprised about is how organized you can be, and by being sort of hyper organized, like you know, like for example, I was kidding with my business partner over here that I know what I'm doing. I'm opening my calendar. I know what I'm doing, you know, December 2nd at 9am, right. which is, which is doing a section for, you know, a, a building set that we got doing the 17th. I already know that I've already, I've already allotted the time for that. And I know that's what I'm going to do. Granted, this all changes, you know, once in a while, but back in school, you know, one of the, I forget if it was a TA or a professor, they were like, you need to understand how long it takes you to do it. You know, obviously back then it was Inca Mylar or Pencil yeah. Bellum or whatever it was, but it's like, you need to understand that an axon is going to take you six hours. And the sooner you know how long it takes and how long you can do it for, right? There's only so much drawing you can do. There's only so many meetings you can do. Um, the more you understand how much time to, to, you know, to emphasize and things is one of the things that is super, super hard to schedule is design time because you don't know how long it's going to take. Yeah. What does that like, process look like for you? Like, you, just, like you, just, you don't know. Yeah. That, that date that you gave us, I thought you were going to open up a calendar and say, yeah, I have a meeting on that day. You gave us a very specific task on a very specific project at a very specific date. What does the right. process now, look the, like and, for you to get to that, that level and, of organization? Well, and I'll tell you the day after at 11 o'clock, I'm doing a site plan for that project. Right. So, I mean, I'm not kidding. This is yeah. stuff is, is so, so how do you, how do you break down a project at that level of detail? To, so to one, so, to so that? I think it's, a, so I think the, the, you know, I, I, I gave you an easy example because it's, this is about a project that we're documenting for the building department. Um, but one of the, one of the 
one of the hardest things to schedule is is design time yeah because you can't you you can't be in a bad mood at least for me i can't be in a bad mood i can't be hungry um like you need to be comfortable enough you need to be kind of loose enough um you know there needs to be like almost like when you exercise it needs to be like a warm-up time um because one of the things that i don't do often now than than i did before was sketching it's like i don't have time to sketch you're running from meeting to meeting or you know you're you're, you're busy dog one of one of the things and i'm sorry that i'm a little um i'm going a little back and forth but one of the things that being a generalist practice and being a small practice from this end is something that I learned um, a while back was that you you have to be humble enough to be able to understand that you're not above anything that you need to do. Right. right. One of the things that I did that I've, I've always been a big believer in is like, I don't care if I'm doing if if my task as part of the team is building a model is getting coffee is you know doing the napkin sketch or doing a wall section detail or you know or or doing an rcp it's like it doesn't matter it's like you have to understand that all of these disparate parts are are will become part of a project and it's a team effort right so on a small practice how big is the team our team right now yeah how big it, is the ra- it, it ranges between two and five people Okay. Depending, you know, if it's the summer, we got more. If it's the winter, we got less. Empl- um, employees or 1099s? Uh, both. Both. Okay. Um, so the so one of the things that I have to do, uh, you know, as the business owner and, the and you know, the licensed architects, at the end of the day, I'm responsible, right? So, so if somebody's scheduled to do, um, you know, some sketches of a facade or, you know, try and figure out some window pattern or something. And they can't do it for some reason, whether they're sick or they're late or they're just not getting it or whatever, it falls on to me, right? So I can't be, I can't really pick and choose what I get to do. You know, when I was leading larger teams and in the larger offices, I usually just end up, ended up doing remedial things like gluing the model or, you know, making sure the laser cutter was working or because everybody else just kind of had their tasks, um, you know, and your job was just to kind of make sure that those were getting done, but at the same time, you know, fill in the gaps of, of what wasn't. But one of the things that's super hard to schedule again is this design time because you don't you don't know if you're going to figure it out, whatever that is, in 20 minutes. You don't know if it's going to take two hours. You don't know if you're going to figure it out at all. Um, but you know the the again it's this kind of cross pollination of things that the you know whatever it is that i was doing ahead of time and it's also knowing when to do it right like i know like if if i'm grumpy in the afternoon like i won't schedule myself to do something like that in the afternoon yeah um you know so it's about it's about knowing yourself it's about knowing your capacity um you know having a little bit of confidence in what you're doing. Do you have specific time in your week where you're actually doing that planning? Yeah, I do in the mornings for sure. And it's blocked out on your calendar. This yeah, is Yeah, that's blocked out in the morning. I mean, I also know that I, I can't really, I'm not as effective doing a task for more than two hours straight. So I usually yep. block myself for, you know, two hours. Um, but one of the things and kind of jumping into the COVID thing for a second, um, one of the things that's been, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. One thing that's been extremely hard to do, but also super, super easy on the schedule is to have uh, virtual meetings. Right. 
right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it, you it to present a scheme or or to present an idea or whatever it is you're you're trying to illustrate on a screen is super super hard. Um, and then people want to see it ahead of time, so they're prepared with comments. And you know, half of the people are on the phone; the other quarter is on an iPhone, which you can't see very well. The other one's a bad connection. Um, and and then a quarter of them, and I'm guilty of this too, is is just kind of checking email and and like doing their own things because they think that it doesn't apply to them, right? So to get people to focus on something is extremely difficult. Now. On the other hand, I can I can be present at meetings and in discussions that involve me peripherally and and be doing other things at the same time. And that is super awesome. You know, the fact that I don't have to catch a subway for an right. hour to go to a meeting with an engineer and then figure out that, oh, yeah, I just wasted two hours because you know, nobody really actually needed my feedback and then, you know, hop on the train again and come back to the office and have the entire afternoon wasted. I just listened to an entire conversation, inserted myself when it was appropriate. But at the same time, I was just kind of doing mindless things in the office that that allowed me to do that. So it's been, you know, it's been a, a, a sort of double edged sword on that. So do you feel that some of those those changes that happened during COVID will remain and become part of our pra uh, practice of architecture in a post-COVID world? For sure. For sure. I, I remember doing, um, when I was a Gensler, you know, since we were doing retail and we were doing retail throughout the country, um, we already had some of this going on. Um, like the in-person meetings we had were very, very limited. Most of it were calls. You know, there were about 20 people on a call. Um, you know the the kind of the video part was not there yeah um so you would you know you would send pdfs ahead of time and you know you would be kind of flipping through it um so that you know at that point this was in um what maybe like 2010 um you know so stuff wasn't completely there but their go-to meetings and webex and stuff were there um so i think what it does is that it, it from from a practice i think it lets you be more involved in places where you can't physically be, yeah. Um, you know, over in Enyad, we were doing projects in China, and, and and that's the way you work, right? There's a small footprint of an office there, but that's just how you work. So I think it's both because of COVID. You know, I think that's proved that there's a little different way of doing this, in terms of like presenting materials or or having a coordination meeting. You know, where you need different people to just kind of focus on the same plan. I think that's tough to do. And on the, you know, we have a handful of projects right now that are under construction and I'm kind of forcing the issue like, guys, let's just, if we're having a coordination meeting, we, we um, but a lot of things are, 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 and will still be virtual. Yeah. I think, I think that some of that is going to be the, the pieces of our profession that we need to still work out that, that yeah. I think a lot of these changes that happened during COVID will remain but we're still going to have to figure out how best to utilize them because I think, like you just said, some meetings should be face-to-face, -face, right? And we should go to the effort of meeting in a, in a right. space yeah. and go through specific things. And so I think we'll have to find our way to, to do that. And that'll happen over yeah. the next couple of years. I mean, one of, the, one of the things that the virtual meeting underscores, and I think you were kind of hinting at it, is, is the, import, the, importance of the, the importance of the event. 
right? Like if we were having like, say, you know, 10 years ago, if you were having a big design presentation, that was a big to do, right? You, you, you booked the big conference room, you booked the conference room with the biggest, with the, or best lighting or, you know, the one that the AC didn't suck or, you know, you made sure that you had the, the coffee, the cookies, the thing, everything. And, and there was an importance about the event that the people there both on our side of the table and the client side of the table understood that the decisions being made were important and that they needed to make the decisions at that time because that was the time of the meeting. Um, I think that's a tougher to do virtually. Yeah. Right. Like people don't, because, you know, the, and I'm guilty of it too. There's half the people that are kind of not paying attention because you're doing other things. As your email inbox keeps keeps getting filled up. Um, and I think the 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 importance of the event and and the the kind of the decisions that need to be made is is lost. Um, looking looking to the into the future, Eugene, where do you, where do you think the practice is going in the next? Five years, not super far out into the future, just in the next few years. How do you think the profession will change permanently, uh, you know, as a result of what we've been through in these past few years? Well, I think that the, I think the profession is moving in, in, I mean, I'm always a, a optimist. So I would think that we're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Um, you know, probably with a couple of, uh, of you know, bangs against the wall and yeah, stuff. a few adjustments. A few adjustments, yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, I think that the the kids that are coming out of school in the last, you know, kind of five years have a completely different... Yes. Dif different attitude, but also a different... Um, a different definition of what an architect is. Yeah, different mindset, different perspective. A different, different mindset. There's not the, there's, you know, they're, they're way bigger on, on where does an architect does its best to influence decision-making. Yeah. And that a lot of times is not within an architecture office. Right, exactly. Right? That's, that's, you know, working, working in government, implementing policy, coming up with policy, um, you know, I have colleagues that that are doing that and they're affecting changes in New York City that I could even not even come close to even dreaming about. Right. Um, so I think that the way that architecture is going is that there's these non-traditional roles that a lot of people are embracing and kind of bringing architecture with it or bringing the architectural kind of thought process with it. Um, I think within the practice itself, there's that that same spirit of like hey we can do better and it's our job to do better in terms of sustainability and climate change and and the kind of technology and the way of of kind of building things kind of the tectonics of, of things um and so i think that e even just that is great yeah um i think there's also been a little bit of a retraction on the kind of the architect idea right which was which was super big over the last 10 15 years i mean there's still a handful of them um but the the idea of the team as opposed to the yeah you know, very the, much so the, the soul i think that's extremely refreshing and welcoming yeah that's um, that's very interesting I, I think that'll be a big piece of the future of our and, profession yeah, is, and, is teams and, and collaboration of team, well, and, teams well and and because 
because everything is a lot more specific um it require and it, and this is this has always been the case but for some reason there was the 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 kind of the birth of the architect that supposedly knows everything but you know because the the niches are 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 deeper the budgets are tighter the the schedule frames are shorter you know everything is more is more rigorous you know you get you, you need to assemble yourself with experts um i mean back to the general practice you know you think of the architect as the the person who knows a little about a lot right and then consultants or engineers are the person who knows a lot about a little right i think that you're always are going to need somebody who, who knows a little about a lot but the more people that you need that know a lot about a little is growing yeah and you can't do a project without that that massive of a team. Yeah, super interesting conversation. Very, very interesting conversation. Before we wrap things up here, Eugene, I want to ask you the one question that I ask everybody here. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? I think you have to, I think you have to, you have to have a right mix of kind of optimism and pragmatism and understand, understand your limits, understand what you can do understand where you kind of fit in in the scheme of things but also be aspirational and and never forget that there's a reason why you're doing this and i think there's a confidence that you need to have that you can't um you know you can't lose track of obviously there's time management and budget management and all of these things that you have to learn right um which which give you a whole different perspective of what you're doing but i think it's that mix of of being pragmatic and optimistic. Yeah, fantastic answer. I love that answer. Uh, His name is Eugene Kohlberg. Uh, The architecture firm is Kohlberg Architecture. You can learn more about what Eugene is doing and his team over there at KohlbergArchitecture.com. You can check him out on Instagram at Kohlberg Architecture as well. Uh, We'll have links to all of that on the show notes. Eugene, this has really been a a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed the last uh, 45 minutes or so. It's been really interesting. Yeah. All right. Thanks thanks for joining us today and thanks for sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. All right. It's been a pleasure. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review. Yep. If you liked this episode, go write about it. Wherever you're listening to this episode, they all have access to a, a rating or a review, I ask you to do that because that's how other architects will find it and share this link. The link to this episode, if you liked it, share it with a friend who maybe not may not know what we're doing here at Entree Architect. That's how we've grown over the last 10 years. Yes, 2022 is our 10th year here at Entree Architect Podcast. And that is how we've grown because you share this link with a friend. That's how we've grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. And thank you to our sponsors, because we could not do it without them. To sponsors for this episode, FreshBooks and RCAT, thank you for their support. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today on this episode are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entre Architect is a member of Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. 
That's G-A-B-L-Media.com. Go check out GableMedia.com. We, right now we have 10 podcasts on GableMedia.com, all architecture, engineering, construction. You will love it. It's built for you. For you. Go check it out at GableMedia.com. And coming to Austin this fall, Austin, Texas, this fall of 2022, the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting. Yes, the first ever live and in-person conference for you, small firm architects. Come hang out with us in Austin this autumn. Visit EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more and subscribe for updates. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash annual meeting our conference for small firms. I hope to see you in Austin. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris owners of Level Studio Architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us? Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a 
possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.